What is it? The main thing I got from it was like this sense of feeling seen and validated. Well, why does it have to be this way? This book was placed in my hand for this moment. Insightful, learned a lot, wrote some quotes that I'm ready to like paint on my wall. I love this book! That we just kind of pull out some, some of the big themes that we see and, and talk about a few different ones. I apologize if most of my contribution has K-pop references. Alternative book title, The Feminine Mystique Part 2. You were really just gay all along. <laughs> Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. We are two lifelong friends who read a book and talk about it each episode. This is a podcast where we explore new perspectives and we use books as tools for personal and community growth. This week, we are reading Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. It's a short novel translated from Japanese about an odd young woman named Keiko trying to find her place in the world. I apologize in advance. Julia probably did a wonderful job cutting out the lawnmower in the background, but in case my voice sounds a little weird, I mistimed my dad's lawn care routine with this recording. So here we are. <laughs> also, we're recording this so incredibly late because I've been sick for yeah. forever, it feels like. So you can probably hear it a little bit. My nose, there's some more resonance in my voice. <laughs> a little, little nasally. Yeah, just a little bit. So... Yeah, but we're back. I think I think my brain works now. That's good. That's what we were waiting for. We we're waiting for Julia's brain to be like, ding, I work now to record this final episode of our season. Woo! I am, I'm getting ahead of our outline, but I'm doing it now because I wanted to. Um, I'm going to India, which is very exciting. Yeah. And uh, Julia will be doing some research and preparing for her next semester. So we're going to be taking a little break from full-length book episodes, but we have some bonus content, some mini-sode content, and hopefully something for book club members. You can check out, we have a film club episode we are putting together just for members. But, Julia, we do have some changes a-coming. Yeah, we do. Uh, moving forward. What can listeners expect? We are tired. <laughs> <laughs> And the way that we've been recording, honestly, this in all of 2022, I feel like we've taken so many random breaks. So we're trying to be more kind to ourselves. I need to write a thesis. Victoria's taking on a bunch of new projects. So we are moving to every other week episode releases. So it, it really just changes things for Julie and I, because as listeners, you've come to expect that we come out about once a week and then sometimes randomly take a week off. So hopefully getting onto an every other week cadence will be more sustainable, more yeah. predictable, and allow us to continue doing what we love, which is making this podcast, yeah. but um, also gives us time for the rest of the things in our life. So yes, thank you all for your ongoing support of our mega effort of weekly episodes, but we will be slowing the heck down a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Should we do some shameless plugs? Yeah, we didn't do the spoiler warning. Well, after this shameless plug, there'll be spoilers. So watch out. If you haven't read this book, Convenience Store Woman, this is your heads up that we'll be talking about all the things and spoiling plot points. Now for some shameless plugs. So... As always, if you would like to support our show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever your preferred podcast platform is. If you look down in our show notes anytime, we have a link to a book. It's linked to our affiliate page on bookshop.org. So if you buy a book on our affiliate page, it doesn't have to be that book. Uh, we get a very, very small kickback that helps us buy books for this show. If you want to support us, as a one-off, or if you want to become a member, you can go to our buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv. Members get access to our film club series where we review book-to-TV or book-to-film adaptations. We have Pachinko now, and we're making two new ones on some recent Jane Austen adaptations, one we really loved, one that's very controversial, <laughs> um, which we're very excited to talk about. <laughs> That's honestly probably out by the time that I finish editing this episode. But yeah, so go check those out. There's also newsletters and personal updates from us and autism-related content from me. It's lots of great stuff. Uh, and that's also where we announce our, like, any sort of special members-only events, giveaways, and stuff. 
that is also where you can stay up to date on that. Speaking of which, our 100th episode giveaway. Yeah, th- we had a 100 episode giveaway and it was open to everyone and it was not just members this time around. And so congratulations to Nicole B, who won $50 to bookshop.org. Thanks for being a faithful supporter and listener of the podcast. Thank you, Nicole B. We had some really great notes from listeners recently that I just wanted to shout out as well. So Mirabess over on Apple Podcasts left the review. Big fan. Love this podcast. Two exclamation points. Very insightful. Such a great way to learn more about books I already love and discover new books. Ah, thank you, Mirabess. I literally stopped what I was doing and texted Julia immediately when I read that and been like, a fan. We have a big fan. <laughs> Someone loves us. It was, yeah, it's always very encouraging. And we are so happy that you love the show. And we also got a really great note from a Buy Me a Coffee supporter who bought us a coffee. Thank you, Nyla. Thank you, said, you so much. <laughs> Please finish your discussion on the Neapolitan Quartet slash <laughs> the story of the lost child. I'm loving your commentary. It's helping satiate my need to discuss these books with someone. You both also have some very thoughtful insights. Thank you, Nyla. We we will take a bribe. We will take a bribe. And um, <laughs> no, all kidding aside, we have been planning to do the fourth yeah. uh, Alana Fronte novel. It's been a long time coming. So um, stay tuned in the fall season as we come yeah. back from our hiatus for some Ferrante love. It, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming, Nyla, I promise. <laughs> We're just really slow readers. <laughs> slow readers, says two women who started a podcast where they have to read a book every week. Oh my god. Yes, we, yeah, we've got big plans for that one. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you, Mirabas. Thank you, Nyla. Thank you, Nicole. And everyone else listening, you guys are a delight. We love you so much. And if you are here just because you want to talk about convenience store women, we now will officially start the conversation. (laughs) Okay, Julia, this was a book that you added to our reading list. And I want to know, what was your experience reading? So I'd seen this book around a lot. It was recommended to me very recently by a friend who was trying to explain... She was trying to explain what 7-Elevens are like in Japan. And she was like, well, have you read Convenience Store Woman as like a reference point? And I was like, no, I've heard of it, though. And she was like, oh, you would really like it. You should definitely read it. And then continued on to explain 7-Elevens. I didn't know much about this book apart from that, but that it was short and it sounded fun. I finally read it on a couple of trains while Victoria was here, which is my favorite way to read a book, as we've gone into in great detail. And I think it maybe took me like three hours total. Yeah, it's you a know. short book. It's very short. I really enjoyed it. I personally found the main character very relatable. I liked the voice of the author. But it was interesting because for like the first third of the book, I was really confused on whether it was supposed to find it funny. And we'll talk about that more later, but it was kind of affecting, like, my ability to get into it because I was torn between my own experience of it and what I had been told about it or reviews I'd seen and stuff. Because it didn't feel funny to me that much. There are funny parts. Anyway, so I was sitting there going, like, am I reading this wrong? Am I crazy? Like, so I, like, needed a second opinion. I needed Victoria to read it. So I was glad we were doing it for the show. So I was a bit, uh, I guess, primed to also be skeptical of like, or curious to see if I would find it funny. Like I was thinking about it a lot because I had heard you share your experience a bit while you were reading it. But I also felt like I didn't find it like hilarious, funny, like, I don't know. I was expecting when people say words like that, like a true comedy. And if anything, this is maybe a satire. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. It could be earnest. Yeah, and so I I don't think I, like, chuckled or, like, thought the book was amusing while I was reading it. And so I was really curious. I dug into a lot of reviews of the book, which I will I have sprinkled throughout the episodes, like, little <laughs> flavors of what reviewers were saying about this book. And it, w- it was kind of mixed, and I think it was similar to your experience, Julia, as far as, like, neurodiverse readers saying, wow, I really see myself in this character's. And then also at the same time being like, why was the book marketed in this way? (laughs) Like, it seems to be like, you're not the only one having that question. So Mm. 
But overall, I thought the book was intriguing. It's definitely an easy read, insightful to a neurodiverse point of view. And I particularly liked this review. It was actually from the, it was quoted in a uh, New York Times article. This is from the translator who translated the novel into English, Ginny Tapley Takamori, who said, she, referring to the author, she has a very keen eye for the grotesque, for one thing that can be both funny and horrifying. And so I think that flavor, if I had read, you know, like maybe a, a weird, funny, horrifying, like dances the line between funny and horrifying, you know, maybe that would like give me a clearer picture of what this book was about. Because when a book is, you know, hilarious, quirky on the mm-hmm. cover with like a cutesy graphic from like the convenience store, like some of the food, it's like really cute. It's a fish soy sauce holder and its nose is a little cap. And it's like a, a happy, like, blue-colored book. It, it gives different expectations than to say something that can be both funny and horrifying or straddling the line between what is normal and what is unusual or something like that. Maybe would have been a more nuanced approach towards the book, but we will we will dig into all of that. So tell us more about this author, because that might provide some insight. Yes. Sayaka Murata is a Japanese writer. She started writing as a young child and published her first novel, Junyu, or Breastfeeding, in 2003. And this novel won an award for debut Japanese writers. And she continued to win awards for her writing. And in 2016, she published the book we're discussing today, Konbini Ningen, which directly translates to convenience store person, um, which is a whole other episode all in itself where we right. dissect <laughs> why the translation choice is convenience store woman versus person, but interesting to note. So her novel won the prestigious Akutagawa Prize, which is one of the top literary prizes in Japan. In the same year, she was named one of Vogue Japan's Women of the Year. And in 2018, the novel became the first of her novels to be translated into English. So altogether, it's been translated into more than 30 languages, sold more than one and a half million copies in Japan alone. And on a personal note, Murata herself worked part-time as a convenience store clerk in Tokyo for 18 years until 2017. So after convenience store person uh, in Japanese was published, she was still still working that part-time job when this book came out. I find that very relevant information. Yes. Yeah. There was an article in the New York Times when this book first came out in English that had a few quotes from the author I thought were really interesting, kind of insight to her experience working at the convenience store. The quotation starts, For me, when I was working as a college student, I was a very shy girl. But at the stores, I was instructed to raise my voice and talk in a loud, friendly voice. So I became that kind of active and lively person in that circumstance. The article continues, Over the years, she chose to stay on the job because the shifts helped discipline her writing schedule. She would wake up at 2 in the morning and write until 6, starting her shift at the convenience store at 8 a.m. After finishing at 1 p.m., she would go to a cafe and write until going home for dinner. She liked writing with the sounds of people around her. Even when writing at home, she said she opens the windows to let in the street sounds. So I thought it was interesting that, like, she has that similarity with the main character of the novel of working at a convenience store. And also I found it interesting to see how articles about a woman who has lived a very similar life to this character, they describe Murata really differently than they describe, like, the main character. Yeah. I think a lot of the reviews come across as a little harsh or, like, very, like, confused. Like, we don't understand this character. And actually, in the same article, we get this text where it says, Miss Murata, who in person does not come across as someone who has any trouble with basic human interaction, nevertheless relates to Keiko. Hmm. And I found it really, like... Okay, I think maybe this journalist (laughs) maybe is missing something here. And Mm. I think in our discussion as we get into talking about uh, masking and autistic masking, we can kind of like dig into this a little bit more because with the novel, we're getting Keiko's point of view, not how other people perceive her. And so from from a neurotypical viewpoint, it might be like, oh, this is so weird. This is so different. But then ostensibly someone interacting with someone who literally is living a very similar life as Keiko is like oh but they just they they're so good with basic human interaction it's like how could they relate to this weird character and I think that's where this divide is in the critics it's people who uh, maybe a little more insight to neurodiversity whether it's through their own personal experience or just being a little more aware I think can identify that like the internal thoughts of someone is very different than the external expression which seems like a 
like a very duh thing to say, but yeah. like it has to be repeated. Like the internal mm-hmm. experiences of someone is not what you're going to see on the outside expression. And if someone's external expression is like, quote, normal, basic human interaction, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And that shouldn't be the way we judge people. Anyways, I'm also getting ahead of myself because I'm like, I'll save all these quotes until we get into the discussion. But I'm like, I just want to start us here. But everyone put a pin in that thought because Julia is going to give us the summary of the book. And then we'll talk more about masked autism. Okay, so here is the book. When Keiko was a kid, she always sort of felt out of step with the rest of the world. Like she didn't quite know the rules of how to be a person. And so when she's in her early 20s, she's drawn to a job at a convenience store, which comes with like a daily uniform and clear instructions on behavior and like a set list of phrases to say in different situations. It's like a manual on how to be a person. And so she loves it and she just sticks with it. So now, 18 years later, in the present day of the book, she's still working at this job where, you know, that the rest of the society considers kind of a temporary step, you know, on the way to get like a quote unquote real job and a real life. And the standard responses she's always given about why she still works this job or hasn't gotten married or whatever are starting to lose their power as she's getting older. Like she's got a time limit in most people's opinion. And so Keiko needs a more long-term solution. And so she meets this guy named Shiraha, who is works at the convenience store very briefly, but he's been largely unemployed most of her life. And he's been relying off of the sort of financial support of his parents and then his brother. But again, his clock is kind of running out too of when they'll tolerate him being like on their dime. And so he is sort of desperately trying to get a wife by any means necessary in order to seem normal and get the get people off his back. But the way he goes about it is like the creepiest, grossest way possible. And he gets fired from this convenience store job after like a week. And he's very rude and he keeps muttering about how unfair the rules of the world are but Keiko is like this is an opportunity here's a guy who is just as desperate to see appear normal as I am so I can use him and so they sort of make a pact where they decide to tell everyone they're getting married and moving in together to sort of get everyone's opinions off their backs you know and so it's like she provides him food he provides her like credibility. But then they realize that once they get, they tick that thing off, suddenly there are more questions and people want to get more involved. And suddenly it's like her, their lives change like completely. And Keiko starts to feel trapped by the situation. And so in the final pages of the book, she realizes that she's like most happy as a convenience store worker. And so rather than being like tied to this dedication to seeming normal, because it's just not working. And so she returns to her old job, breaks up with Shiraha, and she's super excited. She's like, I am where I'm meant to be. And that's where the story ends. The main topics of our discussion are about things that we've already sort of brought up. We want to talk about like the neurodivergence of this story and the different ways of reading it and our own experiences with it and what the story's really saying. And then we also want to talk a little bit about gender because there's some interesting things to discover when you compare Keiko and Shiraha. So really the the heart of the thing that we wanted to talk about is the fact that all of the blurbs on the book and so many of the reviews say it's like witty or quirky or hilarious or deadpan. And, you know, as I was reading it, it felt completely serious. I was like, no, this is a real person. Like, the, this, these are real thoughts I could see someone having. And it's just a person trying to figure out their world and some no one understands them. Like, everything she said made sense. And her isolation felt genuine. And I thought there is some level of critique in society in the story that you could describe as satire. But it's not funny necessarily and it and so I was trying to figure out 
how people thought it was funny. And what was, am I missing something? Is this funny to people on accident? Is there maybe a cultural or translation issue? Yeah, or is, or is there this other layer of maybe something that people are missing when they read it? And that they're actually, they don't realize that they are the butt of the joke, that they are the thing being critiqued in a way. And they're, they're just kind of missing the point of the book entirely. I'm like, am I right? Or are they right? Or is there something in between? Not that someone has to be right, but it, it was, you know, we wanted to wrestle with these questions. And Victoria yeah. did a lot of research, as you already heard her reference to. So she's going to help me answer this question. Yeah, which is a really exciting place to be in, honestly, because dear listeners, usually our life is reversed. In our personal lives, I'm like, Julia, I have questions. And she's like, look, I've done all the research. And I'm like, this is why we're friends. And so I'm so grateful that at least on this one topic, I can provide a little of the support that you often provide me. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to start with the first bit about like, am I reading this differently, specifically as like an autistic reader? Yeah. And you're not alone. There are many autistic writers and reviewers who have also been like, WTF, about the critics' response and marketing choices of this novel, and have talked about how they personally really connected with the the book on like a, like, not joking manner. Just like a, this is so much how I see the world. So here's, this is a bit of a longer quote, but uh, Marianne Eloise was writing an ID, which is a subset of vice Mm -hmm. and i thought it was it did a really good job of summing up kind of like the two two of the sides that we're seeing in uh, at least english speaking specifically american media around this book marianne always writes quote when i first read convenience store woman and one sitting by the pool in palm springs last year back when we could still do things like that i was drawn to its pink cover but put off by the poll quotes calling it quote quirky from here, Eloise goes on to share a list of specific elements of the book that really resonated with them as a, the, uh, as a reader, and additionally pointed out this other article, which I also had come across by Nisha Dolan, called, I thought it was too different to see myself in a novel, but Sayaka Murata got me. That piece by Nisha Dolan is really great, and we'll link it in the show notes too. Okay, so then Marion Eloise writes, Then I read, well, the other reviews, and I felt the sick gut punch of how people actually often see me in other autistic people, as either naive and endearing or calculating and depraved. That is, perhaps, Murata's point. Speaking to the New York Times, she said she, quote, wanted to illustrate how odd the people who believe they are ordinary or normal are, end quote. She lays bare the process of everyday conversation and functioning that autistic people and other, quote, outsiders have to work to understand. The strange, convoluted ways people speak to one another and the things they expect from each other without actually saying it, punishing those who don't get it. Yeah, so I felt like I was talking to you while I was reading these reviews of writers being like, hey, I read this and it was really great. I saw myself in a novel. Also, wow, this really sucks to read a bunch of critics seem to say this is funny or kind of go overboard and, and like pull out specific parts of their personality. There was one that really kind of frustrated me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Dwight Garner uh, writes book reviews for the New York Times. And this is one of the reviews that I felt like maybe the reader, the reviewer just didn't seem to get this book in the same way that we understood it and really focused on the violence of Keiko's character. The very end of the review, Garner writes, one begins to spin through one's Rolodex of loners and wonder if Keiko is less like Dickens' Miss Havisham and less like Babette in Isaac Dinson's Babette's Feast and perhaps more like Norman Bates without the mommy issues. What? I know. (laughs) That's what I said when I read it too. And I just wanted to point out that like the violence of a child who is still learning a lot And the comments of a grown woman who doesn't actually do anything violent does not, I don't know, it feels like a huge step to then read that as, like, psychopathic. Yeah. And I'm like, Garner, man, do better. Like, I don't know, just really hammered in. And then Garner also wrote a review of Murata's uh, recent collection that was published called Life Ceremony. It was a pretty decent review. Makes me want to go read the collection uh, I think Garner's a little harsh on Murata in general, but we've already kind of established that. But in like a, a phrase, just trying to introduce the author, Garner writes, 
The Japanese writer Sayaka Murata is best known for Convenience Store Woman, her 2016 novel about Keiko, a friendless woman who, to tamp down her darker impulses, devotes her life to a job as an anonymous cashier in a Tokyo food mart. Which, while not completely wrong, is like such a specific way to read this book that feels like it's losing a lot of reality. Like, I don't know, I just, part of me is like, Garner, did you read the book? Did you consider other reads of it? I don't know. I'm so baffled. So he he reads her as a psychopath at war with her own nature or something. I guess. Yeah. As opposed to just a confused child. Like she explains her reasoning, I think, very clearly. Why is that? Ugh. This gets into something that I find so frustrating and something that I was often criticized for as a child is that like, if something didn't make sense to me and I asked a question about it, I was considered mean or cold or harsh or cruel even when I just genuinely didn't understand. Like if someone had just explained it to me, I would have been like, oh, all right, cool. You know, but people would just be like, what is wrong with you? And then like, that's not helpful. I'm like, I know there's something wrong because I don't understand why everyone does this. You don't need to tell me that again. Just explain why you do it. And then I'll be on my way and I'll probably do it too. You know, like it comes, the questions come from a genuine desire to get along with everyone. I think that's that's the thing that people don't misunderstand is like just because I don't inherently understand arbitrary social rules doesn't mean I don't want to participate. It just means you have to tell me how to do it. And that's very, you know, that's very different from being actively antagonistic to collaboration and other people, you know, because social rules are just made up. Or they're expressions of certain human qualities that can have a lot of different faces. Like the bird, he must have just gotten really attached to the dead bird and just never gotten over it, is my guess. <laughs> Maybe he's one of those people who like, just has a really soft spot for birds and was like, you can't, you can't hurt the birds. Or did he just not finish it? Like, uh... <laughs> I found it really interesting too, because for me, my experience reading books from a particularly neurodiverse character's point of view has made me more empathetic to them and identified ways that, oh, that is odd that we have that in our society. Or, you know what, what she did was violent against those other children, but her reasoning made sense. And maybe I should question why I assume everyone is operating with the same expectations in our world and actually it makes me a better communicator which is something we talked about a lot on this podcast neurotypical people have so much we can learn from neurodiverse people and recognizing where our communication falls flat and why we continually have communication breakdowns with coworkers and people we love and just neighbors and people in our community because we assume everyone's operating with the same like baseline understanding of a situation when like that's not often the case for any combination of people interacting together so yeah i found it infuriating interesting all all over the board to read a bunch of different reviews but i also wanted to go back to what you also asked was how was this book received in japan we are Mm, reading this in translation so we read the version that was marketed specifically to uk readers because we bought the uk version because julia's in europe but a lot of our understanding of course coming from our own cultural context as americans and so we are reading across cultures here i didn't read a ton of reviews in translation um, but i did find a review from motika rich who is the tokyo bureau chief at new york times so rich is writing for an american audience but from a japanese perspective and i found this probably one of the most i don't know one of the reviews and interviews that i felt most aligned with because I some of the things we've took issue in some of these other reviews I felt like was much more empathetic towards both the author and the main character and highlighting the strengths of the main character which I feel like most reviews disregarded. So okay, here's an excerpt from that article. Kaiko, a defiantly oddball 36-year-old woman, has worked in a dead-end job as a convenience store cashier in Tokyo for half her life. She lives alone and has never been in a romantic relationship or even had sex and she is perfectly happy with all of it. 
Her creator, Japanese novelist Sayaka Murata, thinks that makes Kaiko a true hero. Quote, Kaiko doesn't care, or maybe she doesn't realize, when she is being made fun of by others, says Murata, 38, of the narrator of Convenience Store Woman, her 10th novel and first to be translated into English. She did not want to have sex at all, and that was fine with her. And she chose that life. I really admire her character. Later in the interview, uh, Murata says, I wanted to illustrate how odd the people who believe they are ordinary or normal are. They are the so-called normal people, but when you switch the direction of the camera, it is they who appear strange or odd. I appreciated the, the way that we're focusing in on the character and what the novelist thinks of the character. Um, again, highlighting those strengths and, and highlighting a bit maybe what the author is trying to do. I think she does really well as far as flipping the direction of the camera. So looking at the world through a neurodiverse lens and understanding like, oh, it's wow, how frustrating that is when someone tells you follow these rules, check off these boxes. And then as soon as you do that, they either change the rules on you or then they become more nosy in your life when you're like, I did the thing I was told to do. And now everyone's like, fixated on my romantic life and I'm just trying to be at work and do my job and like common struggles that I feel like many people can relate to. Yeah, I like I'm curious if maybe people were more favorable to the book in Japan or I don't know because it's complicated because that is the culture that she's criticizing, but she's also of of that culture. That's the culture that's producing this book. And so people might be more compassionate, empathetic, connect to it more, even if they aren't neurodivergent, you know, or if like all across the world, it's like the neurodivergent people who attach to it, regardless of culture. And maybe there are Japanese people who had the same reaction as some of these really weird ass reviews from America. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be very curious if there's someone who reads Japanese out there in the world, or if you are Japanese, Please tell us. So I, I'd be very curious. But uh, we don't have time to get into all that, and we don't read Japanese. So we will <laughs> refrain from making any assumptions. So I wanted to kind of walk through what this story was about to me and what I resonated with and why it felt like a story of neurodivergence and masking and nonconformity. And it's so interesting, actually, for us to do this book immediately after Unmasking Autism. It just felt like such a pairing that I didn't even know that we needed because I read them very close together and you did too. Basically, we, you know, the, the sort of masking process, particularly for women, I would say, who have the social expectations of being a woman, at least. You start off in childhood, uh, and I pulled some quotes that sort of explain where, where Keiko runs into these inconsistent rules that she doesn't understand. And that's when she first begins to learn that something about her is different and that people are trying think she needs to be cured. So there's this incident with the dead bird where there's, there's a, a, like a parrot, like a pet bird that's dead. Keiko says, oh, well, we eat birds, right? Because we eat, like, ducks and chickens. Birds are food, right? So to her, category bird, food. And so she's like, there's a dead bird. Are we going to eat it? And everyone's so horrified. And they're all sitting there crying over this bird. And she doesn't understand why. And the more she asks questions, the more upset people get. And then she expresses her frustration as a narrator, where she says, everyone was crying for the poor dead bird as they went about murdering flowers. So they pick flowers to like create a little grave for this bird to like mourn it. But she's like, so you're sad that the bird is dead and we can't eat it like we eat other birds, but then we're gonna kill other living things and that's fine in order to mourn that this other thing is dead. It's just like very inconsistent. She doesn't understand what the categories are. You know what I mean? Because this bird is in the category of pet that people, you know, people normally put the, put a parrot in category of pet, not in category of food, right? And then flowers, people tend to put in category of not alive, <laughs> right? So you can't kill it. And so there are different people apply these arbitrary rules to different things and she doesn't understand, but it slowly dawns on her 
watching her mother's response. Keiko says, seeing her, meaning her mother, bowing to the teachers, apologizing over and over, her face strangely serious, I finally realized that maybe I shouldn't have done what I did, but I still couldn't understand why. So she, like, no one will explain what's wrong, but something's wrong and something's really bad. And she's like, oh, no. Okay, well, there's something wrong with me. I need to fix it. I don't understand the rules, but I can't tell anyone I don't understand the rules. So I need to create some rules or I need to find some. And she's so terrified of doing the wrong thing or being the wrong kind of person that she puts on a mask. And this, so you literally watch her put on a mask um, in her childhood. And she says, I decided to keep my mouth shut as best I could outside home. I would no longer do anything of my own accord and would either just mimic what everyone else was doing or simply follow instructions. The minute I read that, I was like, oh my God, this is just a book about masking. Like this is literally... (laughs) Like she literally walks you through the whole process of how an autistic person might come to not look autistic or, you know, and sort of skirt through life, not understanding the difference, but knowing that there is a difference. And so she's sort of stuck in this place feeling like she doesn't know how to proceed in her adult life until she gets this job at the convenience store and the convenience store hands her a mask like in a gift basket. It's like, here you go. (laughs) Um, Here's a set of rules to live your life by. And here's how to talk and everything. And so she says about the training, it was the first time anyone had ever taught me how to accomplish a normal facial expression and manner of speech. It was like changing costumes to become a different creature. And later on, she says, this is the only way I can be a normal person. And so she, this is her solution. She's like, oh my God. I finally found something that will make everyone else in my life happy, that will satisfy people and allow me to continue living with some kind of rules to live by. And like even her her life outside of the convenience store is all based around her being well enough to do her job and getting enough sleep and eating enough and like scheduling around her job and everything. But that solution doesn't last forever because people are nosy bitches. (laughs) And so her sister helps her come up with some explanations as to why she's been in this job for so long. So she says, I knew it was considered weird for someone my age to not have either a proper job or be married because my sister had explained it to me. I've made it known among old friends that I have certain health issues that make it more convenient for me to have a part-time job. But at my workplace, I tell them it's because my parents are ill and I need to care for them. I have my sister to thank for thinking up these excuses for me. So she, like, just creates, you know, people won't just accept that she's happy in this job. They find it incomprehensible. They cannot fathom how she would be happy doing this job and living her life the way she does for so many years. They just assume that she must be miserable. And no matter how she explains it, they refuse to believe it. And they keep trying to fix her and cure her. And so she just has to come up with excuses that will get them off her back. But it it doesn't last forever. And so that's when she has to, like, bring in this dude to, like, it's, it's, you know, because she's running out of time. So she's like, well, I have to come up with a new thing, a new level of masking in order to for people to put up with me. Yeah, I just, I was so impressed with all of the details. And I feel like the author explained it so, like, it's a great example of show don't tell with regards to masking. I feel like it was one of the best visual representations of sorts. It's not visual, it's in a book. But you, like, you get to watch... <laughs> this character put her life together piece by piece and put her mask together and you can see why and how she does it and how she responds to changes and it's very sympathetic and it's uh, like I was yeah I was really impressed so to me the narrative arc then is like she keeps building mask after mask after mask after mask 
until finally she's like, this is so stupid. Why am I trying to make other people happy when it just, they, it never ends. People are never satisfied with you. You're never normal enough for people and you never will be. And so you just give up. <laughs> she just gives up trying to make other people happy and actually goes after what she wants and makes her happy. And that's the end of the novel when she goes back to being a convenience store person. So like that was my sort of reading and I found it so, so compelling. Like I would genuinely recommend this book if someone is trying to understand the mindset of masking, you know, like maybe you've read Unmasking Autism. You understand all the political and social situations and all the, the brain chemistry and whatever. But you're like, but what does it feel like? Read this book. <laughs> yeah. One of the details that really stood out to me as far as as we watch Heiko put on her mask is how she changes her voice and how she speaks. And she learns the way to speak to certain people and she learns very quickly that if you talk like other people, they will like you because you sound like them. And she's learned how to do it just the right amount to like not seem, quote, creepy or like weird. She's figured out how to blend it together. So she's a little bit of her sister. She's a little bit of her coworker A and coworker B. And she also recognizes how she has changed because of the different coworkers that she that has cycled through the store. And she's like constantly grabbing onto other people. And it, it's one of the saddest parts of the book too, is when she's like trying so hard to like fit the mold of what everyone else wants. And she leaves this convenience store and how much of her life falls apart yeah. because of that. Like she isn't able to take care of herself anymore. She has a really hard time figuring out a routine and like, doesn't really feel like she has a sense of purpose. There were um, several reviews we didn't get into to talk about the kind of, capitalist or anti-capitalist read you might have in this book which i think is legitimate and we yeah. don't have much time to like get into that part and so there is that kind of that conflict there of okay we want what's best for keiko but what everyone else is telling her is best doesn't actually seem what's best for her but we also are skeptical of like she's just a cog in the machine and she even uses that own language to describe herself mm -hmm. and I, at the end it leaves me thinking that they're, I don't know, the, the story gives kind of a nuanced argument for being a, quote, cog in the machine. Like, is that really so bad if it is giving this person a sense of purpose and identity because they're claiming it as their own? It's like a different read than someone who's feeling like oppressed and pushed down by the system because they're just a cog in it. So that's a really fascinating read altogether. But ultimately, coming back to um, Keiko is a, a true hero, as Murata said in that New York Times interview. I think what is so heroic about her is, like you said, at the end saying, no, this is who I want to be. This is what I want to do. I'm no longer playing by your rules because honestly, they don't make sense. They don't fit for me. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and uh, by claiming and choosing herself, I think is like the greatest act of like the greatest her heroic act of the book. Yeah. Is her coming into herself. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. You're it. so excited. Even if you're her. kind of like, wow, this world sucks. But <laughs> you're like, at least you're doing what makes you happy here. Yeah. I don't know if the cog in the machine thing is necessarily bad because it, it's because like the push of capitalism is that you have to be constantly growing. You, it's like a shark. You have to be constantly eating and moving forward. And she refuses. She refuses to climb higher and make more money and have more power and social power and political. She refuses. She's like, I'm going to stay right here because this is what makes me happy. I don't know, like it, it is, it can be kind of sad, maybe, if someone didn't have another option, if the only option they had was to do the same job that felt really pointless their whole lives. But she gets so much meaning and purpose from it. And, you know, she is providing essential, she's providing food and like essential things to people. So I could see that being fulfilling. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's her being a quote unquote essential worker. Right. As we yeah. as we discovered during the pandemic, like if these people can't go to work, the world falls apart. She's one of them. No, that's a really good point. And to like bring me back in my own thinking, like I'm slipping into what the book is even calling out that other people do, which is like, oh, but like, wouldn't it be more fulfilling to do something else? But if that works for you, I guess that's fine. Instead, I think 
a better approach for myself would be, that's great. You're doing what you love. I'm not here to tell you what your purpose in life is. You are here to figure it out for yourself. And for Keiko, this is this is what she wants. Yeah. So that's great. And it provides structure and routine. And so it gives her more brain space to, like, maybe do other things, too. Sort of a sub-thought as we sort of close out our discussion here, is as you mentioned in the author bio, the actual translation of the title, if you want to take it literal, is convenience store person. It's a genderless noun, right? So it's more that her idea, her identity is as a convenience store worker rather than as a human, as opposed to a human being, right? Which it makes it more like essential. And I feel like part of her mask and part of her difficulty is actually the protagonist's relationship to gender, right? Part of so many of the social expectations around her are related to gender. She finds um, the expectations of being a woman very restricting. And so she finds being a genderless convenience store person very freeing. She even says to Shiraha, uh, she says, here at the convenience store, we're not men or women, we're all store workers. And so she finds this sense of unity and equality, and she finds that very comforting. And it's it's a way to escape the complicated social rules that she's has trouble with. Okay, as you say all of this, I'm realizing, I okay, I wish I was sitting in the room with the editors and publishers who are debating how to translate the title. Yeah. Because the English translation, you know, genders it. And at first I was like, why would they gender it? Like that, I, I know convenience store person doesn't, it's not how we would say that in English, but convenience store worker even feels like, a, you know, it's a genderless noun and it, it fits similarly. But I think by giving the title woman in the English title, at least, I think it amplifies kind of the gender conversation that's happening mm, in the book. Mm-hmm. Because her experience as a convenience store woman is different than that of the convenience store men and the men around her in general. True. Because a lot of the pressure she feels is to, yeah, either have her pursuing a career or go home and be a mother, get married, do the things that a woman would do. And so she has that pressure on her, not only to be, you know, the correct convenience store worker, but also to be the convenience store woman, to be a woman in this society. So I don't know what the conversation was that led to that, choice translation is tricky man yeah because i'm curious too the the japanese word there for convenience store person you know convenience store worker in english kind of gets away from the humanity quite quite a bit further and by convenience store woman it, it humanizes it a bit more and i'm curious in japanese if, if maybe they were trying to keep it closer to the more human element that maybe was present in the japanese title that's a good point you mentioned that it's the expectations are different between her and the men because, I mean, the most notable foil for her in the book is Shiraha, who she relates to a lot, even though as a reader, your response to her versus him, very different, right? And I think it might get into a little bit of um, what you were saying, of the difference between what it looks like on the outside and what it feels like on the inside, so we don't get his perspective, really. We get what he says, but we don't get his experience from childhood and everything. But you react to him like, oh, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> he's so creepy yeah. and forceful, and you're just like, ah, like get away. Everything he says is just, like, soaked in misogyny. So <laughs> misogynistic, gross. just drenched in it. But Keiko is the one who sees the similarities. And at first you're like, nah, girl run far away but the more they talk to each other the more you're like okay she's got a point they do both there they are both different archetypes of like neurodivergence and i think it points to a very interesting kind of uncomfortable conversation about what autistic people particularly along gender lines how like the different ways that we can turn out in the world based on the social expectations for us and whether or not people explain things to us, whether or not people require us to conform and whether or not people give us compassion. Keiko is not permitted 
to live off of someone else's dime. She's not permitted to be cruel or insensitive, but she's also given social support. She's given, and her sister helps her come, helps her mask, helps her come up with explanations. She's given, her parents send her to therapy, right? She's given some level of social support in a way that Shiraha is not. They kind of don't seem to care about him. They let him do whatever he wants, but he's not, he's given money support, but he's not taught how to mask. He's not taught how to, here's how you talk to a woman. (laughs) And like, and so he, what he ends up picking up is all of the rejection and the ugliness from the world. And some of the things he says, you're like, you have to wrestle with it. You're like, is he right? Is this the way humanity is? I don't know. I'm not sure I agree. But also, I don't know if your experience, I could see how your experience would lead you there. And maybe no one taught you any differently because no one took the time to explain. And like, really, he, all what he says is, for my whole life until I die, I want to just breathe without anyone interfering in my life. Like, what he wants is to be left alone and to be free. So... Isn't that what Keiko wants, too? I don't know. What yeah. What was your experience of him? He definitely, like we said, we don't get, like, his whole childhood story. And he's kind of losing some of his financial support throughout the novel because of his sister-in-law. Um, is kind of, like, putting the brakes on sending him money that his brother and parents have been sending him for most of his adult life. So we don't, we know a couple details about him, but we don't know, yeah, like his, his origin stories, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And when he says something like, I just want to breathe without anyone interfering in my life. I don't know. It's just, it's really sad because it sounds like something from someone who's been in pain, you know, like that they feel that every breath has been someone telling them what to do or telling them that they're wrong or making them feel unwanted or uncomfortable. On one hand, like, I feel bad for him, mm. but then also he's not a good person. Um, yeah. You had talked before when we were speaking off mic that he's kind of an example of kind of like the dark side of neurodivergence in a way yeah. and how, especially without the social supports, people can be kind of indoctrinated into some like really dark and messed up and misog- misogynistic ideas and, and not have anything to kind of ground them in, in reality. And when their experience has been rejection and hurt time and time again, the one community that might somehow embrace them of, you know, like alt-right beliefs or very kind of misogynistic ide- ideology then becomes that community space or at least, oh, this is why everyone hates me. And continuing to put himself in that place of everyone is against me, no one is for me, and then he responds out of that belief system. So it was really, I don't know, really hard because, I mean, he's not the hero by any means. We don't follow his story, and so we don't really know what happens to him, and it's just kind of a sad character. But Mm. overall, I also thought, like you said, they were good foils to each other, and it made me stop and question, like you said, like, okay, why do I think... Keiko, like, I want to defend her against these critics who say that she's just a psychopath, whereas I'm like, I don't know if I, uh, I don't know if I want to stand up for Shira. (laughs) I don't know. He's kind of awful, but it makes you question it. I think he's ultimately an important layer of the story and gives some, gives Keiko someone to work off of and really opens up her character a lot, I think. And I don't know. It was a cool choice at the end. I was very concerned by it at first, but by the end I was like, I liked that. So for people who have enjoyed reading this book, um, what are other books you recommend they check out? Yes. Okay. If you want some real autistic humor, check out Iowate on Top by Richard Iowate or our episode on autistic humor about that book. Actually, like... So funny. I have never laughed harder reading a book. <laughs> I said I didn't even chuckle reading Convenience Store Woman. I had to put the book down reading Ayoade on top because my stomach hurts so bad from laughing. It's so It's good. so funny. It's so it's funny. Really funny. I mean, it's written by a comedian. Like, it's, you know, it's, that book is meant to be funny. You are meant to laugh. 
a book that I think is not specified to be autism, but is very, is a good point of view autistic character. Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon. I think this is not an autistic character, but I Am the Messenger by Marcus Zusak, I think actually deals with some very similar themes in a very different tone and style. And then I wanted a book recommendation that sort of captures the the bizarreness of reality <laughs> in a way that this book does. And Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, I think does that really well, where it sort of pokes at like social things and is like humans and human society are really weird. Why do we do that? So yeah. Those are my recommendations. I will add to that if you are looking for kind of like entry or introduction to a lot of the science of and social studies of autism. Um, books we've covered on this podcast before include Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price and uh, Neurotribes by Steve Silberman. Both great books if you're looking for a nonfiction read. And my fiction recommendation would be The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson. And I was actually reading... Uh, the sequel to that, The Rosie Effect, I was reading it while we were prepping this episode, mm. so I was doing a lot of comparisons in my head. Um, the main character in The Rosie Project uh, is also uh, kind of coded as autistic, and we get it from his point of view, and so we see a lot of things that were like, why is it that way? Like, that's weird that we do it, and it's totally understandable that this character doesn't understand why someone said what they did. But I think Simshin does a really good job in The Rosie Project of Straddling that line between um, it's funny because we're laughing at what happened. We're not laughing at the autistic character. And unlike Comedian Store Women, the main character in The Rosie Project does have a really wonderful support system. And so we get to see a beautiful love story with an autistic character. We get to see what it looks like for a community to come around and support someone for who they are and not trying to make them quote unquote normal. So that is a, it's a delightful read. And we also had an episode about it. Yeah. <laughs> As everyone can clearly know, I read autistic literature with Julia for the show, yeah. <laughs> and that's where all my recommendations come from, which is great. I'm getting my own, like, syllabus of autistic fiction to read with you, and it's really fun. Okay. Currently obsessed. It's been a couple weeks. I've been sick. I've been deep in K-drama land, so let's see if we have some <laughs> things that are bringing us joy these days. I would recommend the Hulu show Only Murders in the Building. It's like a... <laughs> I would recommend it to Victoria, too, because it's about a true crime podcast. It's a comedy, but it's also a murder mystery. But it's a true crime podcast about an active investigation in their own building. And the podcast jokes are so on point. It's very funny. And then I recently read Piranesi by Susanna Clark. One of the weirdest books I've ever read... In my life, but it was very good. <laughs> but it's impossible to describe, so you just have to read it. And then I am so obsessed with Extraordinary Attorney Wu, the K-drama. It's about an autistic woman who becomes the first autistic attorney, or at least diagnosed autistic attorney in Korea. And it's not perfect, okay? It's not perfect. But you can tell that they really did their research. Like, they know their shit. And it's done very empathetically and compassionately. And they touch on a lot of social topics with, I think, enough nuance that they're not pushing an agenda necessarily or leaving people out. I disagree with some of their takes, but ultimately I'm having a grand old time. So that's on Netflix. I actually have a TV show, which is big for me. A TV show, Victoria? And it's one that Julia hasn't watched, which is probably the first time that's happened in years, or at least in a long time. I watched Severance, which is on Apple TV+. Plus. It looked scary. It was It was intense. There were some scenes, some episodes that were scarier than others, but mm. it was so good. Mm. So good. Okay. Definitely, definitely go watch it. If you, uh... <laughs> I told Varun we need like a cycle of subscription services and we're not paying for them all the time. One reason why I watched Severance so quickly was because I didn't want to pay for another month of Apple TV. So I was like, I got to watch it now because on Saturday, my subscription ends <laughs> and I want to see it. But it was really good. And I can't say much more without like giving away anything about the show. Well, I know I know the premise um, and it did sound very well done. I was Yeah, so the premise is... There are the main character works at a company where there are people who have a brain surgery where 
their work life is separate from their personal life. So when they go up this elevator, it is severed. And so they have, they refer to as innies and outies. So their innies are in the building <laughs> and they have no memory or connection to their outie um, and vice versa. So their, their outside self does not know what they do for work. It's a really interesting concept and I really think it paid off. You know, sometimes there's like a show or a movie with like fascinating premise and you watch and you're like, oh, okay. Mm. They just had a premise. They didn't have a, a show. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was a show. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I'm my normal little self. So I've been organizing my life in a sauna, which has been really helpful. Set reminders for things. I just feel like more on top of it. And I really like being able to check off that I did something on Asana because you have like a little unicorn that flies across the page (laughs) or like sometimes it's an otter it's like a different little animal or mythical creature yeah it's a delight so if you're looking for a way to organize your life maybe organize your to read list or your to watch list I recommend the free version of Asana ah cool what a season. Well, this has been a delight. Yes. Uh, we'll catch you guys all with a full-length episode um, in October. But in the meantime, we will have content coming your way. Good stuff. See you soon. Bye, guys. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to Book Club with Julia and Victoria. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book or the topic we discussed. So you can share your review and recommendations with us on Instagram at bookclubwithjv, on our website, bookclubwithjv.com, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website for show notes with links to all of the recommendations and the things bringing us joy. If you don't already, go ahead and follow us on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you can be notified when our next episode is released. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Brewer, along with Julia Clausen. Rebecca Gasby provides us with project management support. Our music is composed by Greg Brewer, and our logo was designed by Gabby Fablin. Until next time, happy reading.